every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. It's approximately 4 o'clock and I'll just introduce what's coming up on the show. Just to give listeners a bit of background, last week we played a pre-recorded interview with Tamar Hopkins, who is... Um, from the Police Accountability Project. She's the founder of that and a PhD candidate. And Tamar Hopkins was actually part of a symposium, um, an event at Melbourne University that talked about um, racial profiling. As a follow-up to that interview, we'll be speaking shortly with Dr Vicky Sentis, who is a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales, Faculty of Law. And so we'll speak to her shortly, and then after that we'll speak with Vicky Roach, who is um, an Indigenous activist, and we'll speak to her about um, a latest atrocious Aboriginal death in custody. Um, so we'll be sp- speaking about that. That custody actually occurred, Aboriginal death in custody actually occurred in Tamworth, New South Wales. Since 2015, Victoria Police have had a policy that bans racial profiling, African, Pacifica and Indigenous youth, however, are still reporting being stopped without justification. And Tamar gave that presentation um, and she spoke about um, the consequences for Victoria Police and Australian society in general in allowing racial profiling to continue. How can Victoria Police make its ban on racial profiling effective? And Australia is one of the few English-speaking countries where police do not report publicly on their stop-and-search practices. And that's actually a direct quote from the, um, the event profile um, from the Flemken newsletter. So we're going to be speaking now with Dr Sentis, who will also talk about these topics. And hopefully we can also speak with her about um, some of the issues in New South Wales as well. And here we go with Vicky. Hello, Vicky. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me on board. It's lovely to have you. Now, yeah, we were speaking off air um, in relation to some of these issues in regards to racial, racial profiling. But before we actually get onto that, um, Vicky, I'm wondering if you could just um, introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about your work. Yeah, sure. So I work as an academic broadly in the field of criminal law and policing. So I'm particularly interested in police practice in action. So looking at how the laws on the books only make sense through people's experiences. So the law can say one thing, but how police act and who they target and how we make sense of that and why people of colour, why different racialised communities are brought into the criminal justice system disproportionately, uh, you know, at greater uh, percentages and experience the the force and the violence of law more intensely than other people. It's been the, the general question that I'm interested in. So I've looked at counterterrorism policing and its disproportionate impact on Muslim communities. I also work closely with Redfern Legal Centre, um, which many of the uh, listeners would know about in New yeah. South Wales, which is one of the oldest community legal centres in Australia and definitely the oldest in New South Wales, which was established in the 1970s, um, you know, because of the work of Aboriginal activists in response to police brutality, um, you know, and, and the amazing activism at that time, and that continues, which meant that Aboriginal activists were speaking back to... Uh, police brutality and over-policing at that time and, and amongst the Aboriginal uh, Medical Service and the Legal Service, Redfern Legal Centre um, was also created. So I work with them. We have a clinic, a police powers clinic, where we help people with their complaints against the police. And that really, um, I'm quite inspired by that clinic and it informs my research in terms of having... Um, access to people's stories and their experiences 
you know, of the police. Mm. I was, um, you know, I guess really inspired by the work that Tamar Hopkins and her team at Flemington Kensington Legal Service did in persevering with, um, you know, the incredible injustices that were sort of faced, you know, particularly by young uh, African-Australian background um, clients that they had who were being repeatedly... um, uh, brutalised, I guess, by the police, not only stopped and searched without any legal reason, but, you know, often subject to violence and racial abuse. And I was quite inspired by the work that Flemington Kensington did in persevering with those complaints. And that culminated in the civil litigation under the Federal Discrimination Act against Victoria Police for racial profiling at a systemic level. So they weren't just sort of saying this was just happening individually. They were saying this is happening to a whole class of people collectively and being done repeatedly. So I was watching that from afar and and quite inspired by the work they were able to do there. And so when um, I was invited amongst a couple of other academics who were working in the area of policing and and uh, different communities who are impacted by policing. I was really pleased to be able to work with that team to help produce this research, to say to Victoria Police, it's one thing to say, yes, of course, we don't condone racial profiling. It's another thing to put that policy into practice and to make public uh, what those practices are, how many times they're stopping people of different communities Uh, and what the legal justification for that is. And if there isn't a legal justification, we're saying what the research says, it's more than likely if there's no legal justification, it's got to be for some other improper reason, which is often uh, because of racial stereotypes. Absolutely. And that's a very useful useful summary, actually, Vicky, just so that people... Um, you know, able to hear what what your background is, and and I suppose I think you also were part of the working group, or are part of the working group of the Police Accountability Project. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the working group is there's about um, seven academics yep. from uh, across New South Wales and Victoria um, who basically put together you know, our different sort of knowledges and expertise to to help support Tamar, who was the lead author, to look at the research internationally around what other police organisations are doing. And you mentioned in the introduction that I think, you know, it's basically Australia who don't Mm. collect data. So we've got a situation, say, in the United Kingdom where every quarter uh, they have to uh, produce all of the raw stats on how many people they've stopped and searched their ethnicity. And it's created this incredible, um, I guess, accountability where ordinary people as well as researchers can sort of say, well, that's why, uh, Mm. um, you know, five times more people from, um, you know, Afro-Caribbean communities being stopped and searched. And often what police say, and this is certainly what was said in Victoria um, for, for many years, is that people of particular backgrounds allegedly commit more crime. So we saw that in the media in Victoria where, you know, before this case and since um, was, was, was brought, police were saying, well, it's, it's, we're not racial profiling, we're simply responding to incidents of crime. And this quite racialised assumption that people from particular communities commit more crime. And what the beauty of the racial profiling case that Flem Ken brought against Victoria Police in 2013, it called Victoria Police to account. It said, well, show us the figures. Show us what you're doing. And it showed that uh, young African Australians were stopped in search at a rate of something like three times more than um, people mm. of non-African background, yet they were underrepresented uh, in criminal offending. So show that they were stopped and searched disproportionately. Um, and so the whole discourse of Victoria Police that this was just simply appropriate criminal profiling, not racial profiling, that they were actually just... Uh, targeting the people who are committing the crimes was blown out of the water with access to their own statistics. Now, unfortunately, we only had access to those statistics because of that litigation, and there's no legal basis, or there's no statutory um, 
a requirement that Victoria Police make all of their um, figures on who they're stopping and searching and why publicly available. And that's one of the things that we were arguing for in the monitoring racial profiling report is that as a result of the court case, Victoria Police unfortunately didn't admit that they were engaging in systemic profiling, but they did take some interesting steps and they put a lot of resources into you know, trying to regain the legitimacy of the community to say, well, of course, we don't engage in racial profiling and did a lot of sort of outreach work and um, trialled stop and search receiving, but that trial was ended mm. and they didn't take the opportunity to collect data on um, the ethnicity of the communities that they were targeting. So we're saying take that further. Actually, um, you know, they already collect a range of data uh, make it public, be transparent, be accountable. Mm. So if you're saying that you're, you don't condone racial profiling, prove it. And that will, in fact, um, you know, instill, if there isn't racial profiling, it'll instill confidence in those communities. If there is evidence of systemic and ongoing um, racial profiling, which is the experience of, of a range of communities, from African communities to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, you know, to people from Middle Eastern backgrounds, then it allows us to understand um, what's happening, why it's happening and what to do about it. Absolutely. And, and it's great that the research um, is, is including even, the, you know, the Aboriginal people in solidarity as well with, with the other cultures as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we live in a settler colonial society where the criminal law was based and the police, the institution of the police were created to dispossess Aboriginal people from their lands. That's the origins of the police in this country and we can't ever forget that, you know, from frontier violence, murder and genocide um, through to, you know, in the so-called protection period, uh, which was anything but so-called protection you know the police were intimately you know involved in regulating every aspect of indigenous people's lives you know from deciding what work people could do whether people get paid or not and people you know often not paid you know basically stealing people's wages you know to stealing children so the police have you know been intimately involved in every aspect of aboriginal people's lives um since colonization obviously that um you know, with the 1960s and the, introduce, the introduction of a lot of public order offences, you know, we had the beginning of, you know, the mass incarceration of Aboriginal people. And police are at the forefront of that. Police make everyday decisions about whether um, an Aboriginal person should be charged or not. Like we've got a so-called rule in the common law that arrest should be a last resort. So there's this recognition in the law that arrest itself is punitive, that arrest itself is a form of punishment and that it should be a last resort. But, you know, since the, we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, you know, in the 1990s, which recommended that arrest absolutely be a last resort and it found that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people again and again were being arrested as a first resort for very minor offences, like offensive language, uh, for public drunkenness, for the use of public space. And we still don't have that enshrined in the law. We still don't have that recognition. And so to me, things like police using arrest not as a last resort is a form of racial profiling. Yes. It's not just about stop and search. It's every aspect of the police decision about how to interact with different communities. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's it's interesting because one of the the things that I often think about as a radio broadcaster and also as a human rights activist is the fact that the migrant experience, like each, our migrants are always targeted. You know, first it was the Greeks and the Italians, you know, then it was uh, the Asians, you know, then now it's the Africans, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and it's, and being, being um, my parents being migrants themselves, um, I have I have you know observed very carefully over the years at how it changes, doesn't it, um, from culture mm. to culture or race to race? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And we need to learn from, from that history and have solidarity between different migrant groups. And, you know, I think you're exactly right, Marissa, in that, you know, the experience of policing, I think many people don't realise that in the 1970s, the Australian Federal Police um, was sort of established as a result of these kind of coordinated national raids that happened against the kind of migrant Greek community, the so-called Greek fraud case, and that responded to was one factor towards the establishment of the Australian Federal Police. Then we had in the kind of 1980s and the 1990s the establishment of quite racist uh, groups called like the Asian Crime Squad, and in New South Wales the Middle Eastern Crime Squad which asserted that those particular communities were engaging in organised crime in a way that they thought was distinct to, like, uh, you know, to uh, other uh, communities, which, you know, and recently the Middle Eastern Crime Squad has been disestablished, not because of a recognition that that was unfairly targeting those communities, but they were looking for kind of more nuanced ways to target those communities without having the illegitimate... Um, kind of name because, you know, those communities were sort of um, quite concerned about the implications for them. So we certainly do have wave upon wave of different migrant groups that are targeted and we have to understand that police targeting is a broader systemic and institutionalised racism. And so when we look at racial profiling, we're concerned with those particular moments where someone might be stopped and searched because of their appearance or the colour of their skin or because they live in social housing or because they might come from a low socioeconomic background. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. So when you sort of scratch at the surface and look at why someone might be stopped and searched or arrested, it's not just we're saying that individual police officer might be racist. They may well be. They mm. may well have unacceptable attitudes, um, stereotyped attitudes towards a particular community. But we're also interested, and more importantly, what I think is more interesting is how the police force as an organisation uh, enables um, you know, the over-policing of Aboriginal communities, of African background communities, of other sure. migrant communities. And one of the things that I think is interesting that people don't uh, necessarily realise is that things like stop and search are often subject to what's known as KPIs, like key performance indicators, so that um, there's pressure on police to have more and more move-on directions, stop and search, and arrest as an indicator of their performance. So we've got, it's all part of um, neoliberal funding of so-called public services as well, so that uh, we had a shift towards the way that police were funded in the mid-1990s, whereas it used to be they used to get whatever funding they got the year before plus a bit of extra to sort of just you know, justified through the growth of a population or the growth of the police force. Now police forces get funded based on so-called efficiency and effectiveness indicators. And one of those indicators ends up being, um, you know, how many times they've engaged in stop and search. And that's one of the things that we're concerned about. What is it about the police institution that's driving their officers towards targeting the so-called usual suspects rather than taking the time to actually investigate um, actual offences? And often what stop and search happens is that people from racialised communities find themselves the subject to a stop and search. And people, you know, our clients often say, but I didn't do anything wrong. They didn't have any evidence. And there's this move towards so-called crime prevention, what you know, a lot of people call future crime, is this idea of stopping crime before it happens. And so police are pressured by the institution not just to um, solve actual crimes, um, you know, say there's been a burglary, bur mm. a burglary in the in an area, and police are kind of um, looking for the person who's committed that burglary. There actually, there's no actual crime in mind. It's sort of look targeting um, particular people. They may have been charged with offences before. They may have done time before. But now we see a focus on so-called recidivists, where police are actually targeting particular people because they're known to police. And we know that it's people of colour, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, 
who are overrepresented um, in police databases as being known to police. So um, I think we need to put racial profiling in that bigger institutional context to look at what the drivers, there are often these economic drivers uh, towards why people are racially profiled as well as, as old-fashioned stereotypes. And yet, when they did the trial, the police did the trial in Victoria as a result of the um, racial discrimination case, is it true that they they didn't include um, the race of the person that receipt with the stop, yeah, that's you know, right. with the data? Yeah. yeah, that's right, Marissa. So it was a real opportunity to kind of have some courage and actually um, include that data. And, you know, quite often it's data that police already collect. It's just not systemic. It's not systematised. It's up to kind of the police discretion whether they collect that data. And so there was a real opportunity for Victoria Police to kind of go, OK, we're going to actually collect this data. Yeah. Um, but they didn't. And, mm. you know, one of the things that I think they were saying is well, that they were concerned that by collecting this data it would cause community concern or community harmony issues around why the data was being collected and certainly it could be done very badly so that's right certainly that's that's exactly it it could be done very badly but if police what we're sort of arguing is that police already have perceptions about the person's ethnicity yes they're Engaging in so we're, you can minimise um, those those risks, which we think in the scheme of things are pretty minimal risks. But you can minimise them by drawing on, yeah. um, you know, police perceptions um, of the person's ethnicity as well. But no, that that data wasn't collected, so the trial was quite limited. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that the whole purpose of the stop and search receding trial is often police don't tell people who are being policed why they're exercising their power. They don't say, um, well, there's been a burglary and you fit exactly the description, therefore we're going to stop and search you because often um, police, you know, research has shown in other jurisdictions that, um, you know, very few stop and searches actually um, reveal a stolen item or a prohibited drug. So it's used, it's not, stop and search isn't used to detect crime. Stop and search is used to often exert police authority or to engage in street sweeping or to move people on. So stop and search is a particularly, um, is a power that's particularly vulnerable to uh, state abuse. Is because it, what's the experience, not- oh sorry Vicky. What, uh, no you go. What was the experience in New South Wales, um, obviously, there's been work done there um, in regards to the, the stop and search. And the yeah, look, the work in New South Wales hasn't been as organised or as advanced as the work that Flemkin Kensington Legal Centre have done. Like, we certainly haven't had um, a racial discrimination action, but certainly anecdotally, and that's, I mean, I think that's something that we can take inspiration from Victoria and work towards. Um, so we don't have the same access to the litigation statistics that they had in Victoria. But we know through um, the work of community legal centres like Redfern Legal Centre, which has a statewide complaints practice, it's not just for Redfern, it's for the entirety of New South Wales. We know from looking at the statistics in our client base and also our clients' experiences that it's a hugely entrenched systemic problem of people being stopped in search who haven't committed an offence, where the police haven't got a legal basis to be able to authorise them being stopped in search. And when I say they don't have a legal basis, they don't have a reasonable suspicion that the person um, may have been engaged in a crime. But unfortunately, most of the time, because when police stop and search someone, they don't find anything, there's no way for it to go to court and the magistrate to test it and say the police have engaged in unlawful behaviour. So what happens is they come to Redfern Legal Centre and we make a complaint um, sure. to the police. But unfortunately, you know, like all jurisdictions in Australia, there's no independent body to complain to. Most of the complaints go back 
to the police unless it's defined as serious misconduct, which is a pretty high threshold, and then it goes to an independent body who decides whether they're going to investigate it or not. So we don't... I mean, we've been working on the ground with people who are experiencing um, excessive stop and search, um, who are experiencing police violence, who are experiencing... Um, you know, move on directions is another one where police have this really broad power just to move people on who are in public space um, for really no good reason. People who are unlawfully arrested, people who are maliciously prosecuted, so charges will be brought against them when there's no evidence or basis for it. So a, a whole range of things. People who are arrested when they should have just been given a court attendance notice were taken down to the station. And it is, and particularly for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients who experience the violence of policing at, you know, um, you know much higher rates. We you know police think that they can... Um, stop search and arrest or move on Aboriginal people um, for no reason. Like we, I mean, these are these are not new stories. No, they're just that's repeated exactly right. and yeah, they're repeated and continuing stories. And that's something that um, you know we certainly um, watching what's going on in Victoria very closely um, to think about ways we can use the law strategically to get those stories out there and hold the police to account. So in many ways, we're we're sort of quite behind Victoria around th those legal strategies that they're using, but um, watch this space. Absolutely. And, you know, Vicky, that's a really great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming onto the program and um, giving listeners a very, very concise overview, really. And I'm sure there's – look, we could talk all night, really, but <laughs> there's so much to talk about. Um, but, yeah, th thanks so much for coming onto the show, Vicky. No worries. Thanks, Marissa. I really Thanks enjoyed chatting with you. You too. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Dr Vicky Sentis, who is a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales in the Law Faculty. And she was speaking about racial profiling as a follow-up of Tamar's um, pre-recorded interview last week in relation to the symposium that happened where there were a number of speakers. It's approximately 427 um, and we're going to be sh speaking shortly with Vicky Roach um, and stay tuned now for a short message. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that yes there is uh, certain hazards but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you're back with, you're back with the Doing Time show. So, yeah, we're, next up we're going to be speaking with Vicky Roach, who's been on our show quite a few times. Um, and we're going to be speaking with – there's not really much to – talk about but nevertheless it does need to be looked at um there's very scanty information about this next topic but um we're going to be speaking about the latest aboriginal deaths in custody um with a, a man from tamworth there have been explosive um allegations it's quite atrocious hello vicky welcome to the program hello how are you good good and, and yourself yeah pretty good it's lovely um, to have you vicky 
thank you. Thank you. Lovely to be on the show. Yeah. Um, although it's pretty dire circumstances we're talking about here. Very much so, Vicky. So so I know the information is, is quite sketchy um, and we have to be, you know, a bit, a bit cautious at the moment, don't we? But what, what's happened? Well, it would seem another young man has been found dead in custody um, from what I can gather. And as you say, there's scan information available, yes. Um, he... Would appear to uh, would appear to be a suicide that is not a suicide. Mm-hmm. That's from what I can gather, and there's been more information coming out about not so much about the specific incident, um, but I've been reading on Facebook actually um, a number of other people, and other uh, other families and children who have been in Tamworth have come out and said how badly they've been treated while in there. Um, so, And as, as we've seen in all of the other instances of abuse that have come out in different institutions all the way in the country, this is systemic. Yeah. It is widespread. These are not just isolated issues. These are a result of the training these people are given. Mm, that's right. Or not given, as the case may be. It's, you know, it's quite worrying and, in, in fact, there's been quite a few anniversaries of, of um, deaths in custody late with Miss Dew, I believe, has been a recent... Her death um, recently happened... Well, not recently happened, but the month, her anniversary of her death, of the death happened this year in September, August, I believe, wasn't it? I believe yeah. Miss Dew. And... But just as an aside, Vicky... The Welcome to Country website, have, have you have you looked at that? Yes. Because this is where most of the information has come from. And the thing that I find quite disturbing, and this is no secret, is that it appears that no mainstream media have taken up this, um, this topic yet. No, I haven't seen it anywhere in the mainstream media. Okay. Except there's a brief, you know, one or two-liner saying that there was a death at a custody centre. Yeah, see, no. that, that's a bit of a worry, especially as we have the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, but but it's interesting. I mean, from what I can see here, Vicky, um, it looks as if there's been some type of um, a situation where the man was in the Tamworth Correctional Centre. He was a young Aboriginal man, and then he apparently died in hospital, correct? From what I can see here. Um, yeah, I couldn't be sure. Yeah, just to quote... So he died in the, in the, in the centre. Yes. Um, yeah. Because what I feel here, and, and, and I suppose we shouldn't speculate too much, but, you know, a close friend of his apparently said that corrective officers in Tamworth jail-bashed and then proceeded to hang the young Indigenous man in order to cover it up as suicide. Exactly, and we know that that's happened many times in the past. It's um, <laughs> yeah. it's a common behaviour for people in those positions. And there's also one hour of video surveillance unaccounted for in the jail. Yes, that's right. I did hear that. I did hear that. Um, hopefully, hopefully, some of the some of the lawyers that are involved in um, in the deaths in custody actions, we'll get onto that and make sure that that footage uh, is found and released. Yeah, look, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. So, from your, from, in your opinion, opinion, Vicky, what do you think are some of the the issues that have arisen from from this death in custody? Oh, they haven't just arisen from this death in custody; they've arisen from every death in custody. Thank and you. Yep. continue to each time there is a death in custody. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no escaping the fact that we die more often in custody. Why are they still putting us in custody? Um, a lot of the judiciary say it's for our own safety, um, get us off the streets, all that sort of thing. But they're putting us into somewhere that is less safe than where we are. Um, 
that's exactly right. You know, there's so many examples, isn't there? You, you know, there's Mr. Clark, who, yes. who Mr. Clark, and I. In fact, I remember interviewing Ray Jackson about him when Ray was alive. Yes. And there were uh, some uh, health issues there. there. There's been so many. It it just never stops. No. Um, as an Aboriginal person, um, I'm terrified of coming into contact with the cops. Yep. Every time I drive my car, you know, oh, my God, I hope I don't get pulled over. You know, not, that, not because I'm doing anything wrong. Yeah. Because I'm going to have to deal with them and I may say something or upset them in some way to warrant being abused. And I'm sure every Aboriginal person in this country feels the same way. Absolutely. We've covered a lot of... worried for their children. Yes. TJ Hickey, for example. Yes, yes. So many, so many young men last year. Yeah. And it never stops and, and... I don't know how they can justify the the treatment in remote communities where a lot of people in custody come from. Yeah. Um, which criminalises and places Aboriginal people, of course, ensuring that so many of them wind up in custody where they are more likely to die. You know? Well, that's right. I, I think, don't know what yeah. we can do short of um, tearing all these places down brick by brick and dismantling the judiciary to stop incarcerating us. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm kind of having doing going to do some more research about this, but I'm wondering, is there a notification? I don't think there's even a notification service now in New South Wales. No, they... Um, I think it's operating in some weird sort of way. Adelaide, I think it is, but not, not Tamworth, not New South Wales. Not New South Wales at all. Yeah, they, they defunded it. You know, because really the proper channels should have been for, you know, for, for the police to ring the notification service to say that there'd been a death in custody, you know, then the family could have been notified and there could have been supports put in place. Well, quite often family only, only have, are the last to know. Vicky, you know, I was really nervous about doing this um, interview, but I decided to do the interview given that it's a very, it's very, very important. And let me explain to you why I was nervous, because this is really important. And I think, basically, I don't think the police have officially reported the case to the media. It doesn't sound like it. No, no. and so. And this yeah. has been a couple of days now. It's been a couple of days and already the corrective services believe that the story that appeared on Welcome to Country on the website is inaccurate, which yes. it's not true because of the fact that there's this is death in custody is real, just like all yes. the other um, deaths in custody. And there's also been protests in Tamworth, I believe, about this. Yeah, there was a great protest there on, on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw photos there that looked like a large turnout too, um, which is good. We have to start um, making a lot of noise. You know, do people even know that this is happening? Like with nothing in mainstream media, how does, how does Joe Bloggs know that the Australian government is actively killing Aboriginal people? Yeah. Well, actively like murdering Aboriginal people. And yeah. yes, I'm saying the Australian government because... They're the ones that pay these people to actually do this. And they're the ones that make the policies that allow mm. for these deaths in custody to occur and to continue as they do. Exactly. Like with TJ Hickey being impaled on the fence. Yes. You know, and they, they want the police want them to see that it's a, the family and to see that it's an accident and then all the family members being harassed after that and put in court. And still being harassed. To this day, <coughs> yeah. every year, every, every commemorative march they have for TJ, the police arrest them. That's exactly right. And, you know, have they honoured the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody? I don't think so. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and attempts that they've made to 
they've um, actually twisted the spirit mm. as the recommendation and paid lip service to uh, like fulfilling the recommendation, but the actual um, effect of it on the ground is nothing like what the recommendation was supposed to have achieved. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. Like, you know, you've got the, the um, for example, Recommendation 92, imprisonment must be sanction of last resort. Well, that certainly wasn't adhered to with Miss Dew, was it? It because, never is. Because she was put in there, you know, um, for unpaid fines when that should not have happened. No, no. And look, we, we have... We have laws against that in other parts of the country. That's um, right. But yep. we don't get locked up in New South Wales for non-payment of fines anymore. Mm. We used to. Okay. Um, and then you, you've got so the recommendation... recommendation what's that? Sorry, Vicky? Oh, I was just going to say the recommendation is not being referred to at all. It's not. And in fact, what do you think of um, Recommendation 87, which is arrest people only when there is no other way of dealing with the problem? Yep, and and police have extraordinary discretionary powers when it comes to um, whether or not they arrest somebody. That's right. And Recommendation... They exercise those powers when it comes to Aboriginal people. They do, don't they? Absolutely, you're absolutely right. And then you've got Recommendation 121 is for old fines to be waived and the total opposite of the West Australian prison for fines policy happened with Miss Dew. Yes. yes. So we need to have an immediate end, don't we, to the ongoing deaths in custody. Um, and in this particular scenario, and let me know what you think of this, Vicky, but we need to have a, a thorough, thorough investigation with police not investigating police about this latest Aboriginal death in custody in Tamworth. That, that's the most absurd thing in the world that police would investigate their own wrongdoings. Look, how do we even have a system that allows that? You know, to blind Freddie, you can see that that's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. You know, like, um, if I commit a crime, I should be able to just say, oh, okay, don't worry, I'll, I'll go and investigate myself. <laughs> you know? I know. Like... That that's just crazy. Like like what happened with um, Cameron Damaji, you know, and that that time when when he his liver and spleen were cleaved in two, um, at the cell. And remember? he fell off the step. Apparently, he fell off the step in Palm Island, and the cops went and had beers, yeah. beers to investigate they the situation. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, you have to laugh, Vicky. Otherwise, you go mad, really. Uh, I I do both. I alternate. But look, I I wanted to have you on because, you know, you're you're an Aboriginal woman from New South Wales. Well, actually, well, you're living in New South Wales um, at the moment and it's always good to to talk about um, the deaths in custody even though there hasn't been all that much in the media. Uh, Look, we've got to... We've got to get it into the media. We have to make a really, really loud noise about this. Um, uh, look what America achieved with Black, Li- Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have to make a big noise because the average Australian, I believe, is with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't want to see this happening to no. us. But they don't know it's happening. They don't know. Or exactly. they think it's only happening to bad people. Correct. Correct. We have to get the message out there that it's not, that it's our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, our aunties and uncles, cousins. It's happening to our people. Well, we have to make sure that doesn't happen and we, we need to um, build the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. That's what yes. we need to do, And, and the shut youth, pri- shut youth prisoners? Action is starting at the end of this month, so that's something to get on board with and uh, check the internet and see what's going on in in your area. That's exactly right. It's approximately four forty-four, and we're listening to an interview with Vicky Roach, speaking about Aboriginal deaths in custody and how we can build the movement to stop that.
Vicky, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's always um, great to talk to you. I enjoyed your company. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was Vicky Roach, um, Aboriginal activist who's currently living uh, in New South Wales and speaking about Aboriginal deaths in custody. And I, now I think it's a bit, a bit of time for some music. Um, I'm going to be playing you a song. It's called Charcoal Lane. Um, and this particular version um, was sung by Paul Kelly and Courtney Burnett. Um, so stay tuned for that song. Side by side we'd walk along to the end of Gertrude Street Then we'd top all in mustard for a coat of wine Thick or thin, right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat Cross over Smith Street to the end of the line Then we laugh and sing Do anything to take away the pain Trying to keep it down As it first went round In Charcoal Lane
faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one remembers your name when you're strange. When you're strange. When you're strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. Back with the Doing Time show, and after Charcoal Lane, which was originally written by Archie Roach, great version there by Paul Kelly, and um, yeah, so after that, we heard um, When You're Strange by The Doors. It's approximately 4.51, we're nearing the end of our show, but before we finish, I just wanted to um, make an announcement. The Indigenous Social Justice Association, Melbourne, is pleased to present the second annual ISJA Trivia Fundraiser. Come join Easter Melbourne for a fun night of pub trivia supporting a great cause. There's heaps of fantastic prizes on offer and questions ranging, ranging through the fun, the political and, of course, the trivial. Bring yourself and make some new friends or bring a few and make a team to be reckoned with. Guaranteed to sell out, so get your booking in quick. Easter Melbourne campaigns against the ridiculous high rates of Indigenous deaths in custody across Australia and supports families of death in custody victims. Istia was formed in the wake of the death of TJ Hickey in Redfern in 2004 and has been instrumental in its campaigning around inquests into Indigenous deaths in custody, victim family support and in seeking accountability and reform to the laws and practices that allow these tragic deaths to occur. Funds raised at this event will contribute to the ongoing work of Istia. When is the event? The event is um, from 7 till 10pm, Saturday, October 21st, where the Vic Hotel, 380 Victoria Street, Brunswick. And the Vic is located just off Sydney Road, Brunswick. And Istra recommends PT with Brunswick Station very nearby and, of course, the 19 tram and a number of buses. Um, basically, food and drinks are available for purchase at the bar and cover a wide variety of dietary options and needs ranging, ranging from tasty snacks through to your classic pub parma. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd mention that's very important um, to attend that fundraiser um, and Google some other organisations in your area and try to get down there and educate yourself um, about Aboriginal deaths in custody. Thank you very much to both our guests. Um, thank you to Vicky, Dr Vicky Sentis from the University of New South Wales for speaking about racial profiling. Um, and also as a follow-up for the recent symposium that happened at Melbourne University, um, who had a range of speakers in regards to a, a recent report that was compiled with research about um, Victorian police stop and search data and ways that that can be um, improved. Um, we're going to be back the same time n next week. We'll be back every Monday for the Doing Do Time show, 4 to 5, um, thanks to Rob for producing um, this afternoon and also thank you to Peter for um, helping to organise the show. 
It's approximately 4.54 and we're going to be going out presently with our um, theme song, Black Fella, White Fella. Um, but we'll, I'll, I'll do an announcement first and then I will do the um, the theme song. So we'll do that right now. So it's goodbye from Marissa and uh, stay tuned at the same time next week um, for the Doing Time show. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that yes there is uh, certain hazards but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice and as we fast forward to today we see that same thing. 3CR keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia.